Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Thanks for listening. So glad that you could join us today. In studio, I have with me David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi. So we are upcoming on the last of the summer drinking holidays. And because of that, I thought that we might talk a little bit today about drinking holidays in general, but in more specifically uh, the Labor Day weekend and what happens when people drink too much. And not just folks who have the disease of addiction, but anybody who might overindulge this weekend. So thanks for, um, for joining me on this discussion today. Thanks for having us. I'm, um, I was intrigued, actually, by a lot of the articles that, that we were looking at in preparation for this show that none of them actually are specifically about addiction. They're all pretty much about people who are just drinking. And, and mm-hmm. so beginning to look at the impact of alcohol on our society and on our, our systems. Right. You're absolutely right, David. The articles that we chose to review for today's show, most of them looked at the significant impact of alcohol on people's lives, but not necessarily did any of these people have the diagnosis of the disease of addiction. They weren't labeled alcoholics. Some of them may be high-risk drinkers, but that's not, we're talking general population here for most of these studies. So I think that's going to make for some interesting discussion. Eye-opening. Eye-opening. <clears throat> yes, sir. So in order to kind of get things started off, um, there was a recent article uh, listing the 50... Uh, in rank order, the 50 states that have the highest to the lowest rate of drinking, and then within that state, the metropolitan area that was the significant um, drinking spot within the state. So, just to question you gentlemen, what state do you think has the lowest rate of alcohol use? So my initial thought was Utah. Uh, and that would be a good thought, but Utah was not that one. In fact, Utah was number 48. So there were two There's states two below Utah. Below Utah. I'm going to guess New Mexico. And that also would be wrong. <laughs> I'm not even sure that would be a good one. <laughs> but um, I was really surprised, frankly, when I saw this. The lowest drinking state at 11% of the population drinking excessively would be Tennessee. That was my second thought. Oh, sure it was, Michael. Was it really? Yeah. So then what... I actually would never put Tennessee on the list (laughs) because you just think of Kentucky alcohol. Exactly. Tennessee alcohol. Right. Um, And you think of several metropolitan areas within Tennessee that might have a higher... Drinking. drinking and dancing. So what would be the highest um, metropolitan area, do you think, within the state of Tennessee? So we're going, this is the lowest rate uh, drinking state, but within that state, what's the most... Um, Drunkenness. Yes. Memphis. So I'm going to go with Nashville. And, again, you would both be wrong. See, I didn't give them this article to read, by the way, listeners, so that's why they're stumbling a bit. It's actually Murphy's. Murfreesboro, Tennessee is the Mm -hmm. drunkest. Mm -hmm. Which is, I think, University of Tennessee? Well, 
I was I was going. I thought that one of the one of the schools was in Knoxville. So is it Tennessee State? It must be. Oh dear! Now we're having. <laughs> we're going to get some universities. We're going to get some, some universities upset with us. So, um, where do you think Georgia ranks? I would think Georgia would be up high up on the list. I would say we're probably from one to fifty, maybe number number eighteen. Okay, twenty. Well, again, you would both be wrong. By the way, we're having a good day today. <laughs> by the way, Arizona was thirty-eight, and Georgia is actually thirty-three. Oh. So we're in the bottom. Lower than I thought. Fifty mm-hmm. percent. If you want to look at it that way, Um, 16.8% compared to Tennessee that had 11%. 16.8% of our population drinks excessively. And I would assume that most of that's in Athens? Uh, Athens, Clark County. You are correct. Good. Uh, Team David gets one one point. Finally. So, here goes. Uh, What do you think is the most... The heaviest drinking state. <laughs> so we've had a call out for Texas. I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with um, Florida. Okay, we've and got I'm gonna t- say wherever University of Florida is, Saratoga, <laughs> Gainesville, Gainesville, Florida. I think it's a northern state. I think it's either North or South Dakota. Well, Texas is number 31. And Low on the number. The most drinking city in Texas is? Austin. Austin. Austin is the uh, drinking capital of Texas. So Texas doesn't do that well uh, in terms of drinking. <laughs> they do well in terms of barbecue. So how's Gainesville, Florida? Gainesville, Florida. Um, Florida is number 29 out of 50 uh, and the highest uh, the drunkest metropolitan area is actually Fort Walton Beach and Destin okay I, which I'm I that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've got some heavy votes for that uh, 17.4% of the Floridians drink excessively alright so Michael you I gotta- can tell you I have been to a very very interesting AA meeting in Fort Walton Beach Florida so they have done some recovery there they as well. Have, actually, they really do have a lot of very good recovery. And there's some notable treatment centers along that uh, uh, Gulf Shores area. So, yes, they have a problem, but they also have um, a, the solution, which we're happy to hear about. So, Michael, you're going to have to pick one, North or South Dakota. Which one do you think? South Okay, you should have gone with your other thought. <laughs> uh, North Dakota is the heaviest drinking state in the nation with 24.7% of the population drinking there excessively. And what do you think the city within North Dakota that is the drinkingest city, if that's a word? So I'm going to go Fargo. With Fargo. Fargo it is. Wow. So look at you guys scoring. So I'm looking through my list here, trying to find where South Dakota is. Uh, South Dakota, I have to keep going. It must not be very far. 
I have to keep going backwards here. It's behind all that, behind all that. South Dakota looks like it's weighing in at number 25. Oh, that's I know. a big difference between North Dakota and South 17.7% Dakota. 17.7% and Sioux Falls. What was interesting to me as I looked through this was many of the states, to your point, Michael, that have high drinking rates include places like number 12 is Vermont, number 11 is Maine, 10 is Michigan, 9 is Nebraska. What was interesting to me, though, is that Hawaii is number 8 at 20.5%. I think that's because a lot of people go there for vacation and and end up you know, it's a it's a tourist place. Kind of a What vacation. else are you going to do yeah. It's an island? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting though cuz um, in looking at global uses of alcohol, uh-huh. When you when you read about the countries that drink the most, um, they're all, they tend to be northern countries yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Norway, um, then Russia, Canada. Russia, Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, something to do in the wintertime. Something to do in the wintertime. There's also, and that's a whole other show for another day, but some uh, thought about how alcohol became a part of the diet of, of humans and how that came to be an important um product that people made and stored and it was the northern climate because they had to learn how to preserve their food and out of that preservation process da they learned how to create fermented beverages and so it is in the northern climes that that was actually probably um, first developed so Iowa's number seven Minnesota number six Illinois uh, number five Montana number four Alaska number three Wisconsin number two and North Dakota as I said number one. So if you're traveling to or from any of those um, high-ranking states, just be aware that in uh, North Dakota, almost a quarter of the people are drinking to excess on a regular basis, and this weekend it's probably going to be worse than that. So first take-home message from today is to be really careful on the roads and to be very aware of um, the fact that alcohol is going to be consumed in large amounts and that there will be probably people on the roads drinking and driving who surely shouldn't be. So use your Uber, use your Lyft, call a friend, stay home. Don't drive. Don't drive. Whatever you do, don't drive. And certainly don't drive where I'm going to be, okay? <laughs> so we, um, we've we kind of clarified where some of the states are that have some problems. But um, there are some real interesting effects that we learned about. And one of them was that a hangover lasts a lot longer than you think. This was actually a really pretty interesting article. Um, um, I think everybody has has recognized that the effects of having a hangover, you know, causes a headache and may cause you to be a little bit draggy at work. But it actually has a much bigger impact than people mm-hmm. have previously given it credit for. Um, they actually noted that that day after, many of the exact same um, 
dysfunctions that you have when you're intoxicated are still present in terms of poor memory, um, poor coordination, um, uh, executive functioning is turned off. Uh, reaction time, all of the things that would make you a poor driver while you're under the influence would also make you a poor driver or a poor operator of heavy machinery the next day uh, if you have a hangover. This was an interesting study done at the University of Bath that was published in the journal Addiction. And uh, they really highlighted uh, how important it is. And in the United Kingdom, they... Uh, actually feel like it's 1.9 billion pounds per year due to absenteeism or presenteeism where people are present but under, but not performing. But not performing to their to their peak. And many of um, the concerns about this are related to hangovers from alcohol. So not people drinking on the job necessarily, although that's a really bad thing too, but certainly people who have a hangover are not going to be safe when, to... When do they consider it a hangover? Is it is it after all the alcohol is out of their system? Um, that's how they're they're looking at this. They're looking at um, no longer being intoxicated and um, the next day's effects of alcohol. Okay. So once they're no longer intoxicated. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to learn about the drunksies. So please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Come join us on September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park for the first ever Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. Walk a Mile in Her Shoes asks men to literally walk one mile in women's high heel shoes as a way to express empathy to all victims of sexual assault. It's a lighthearted way to get the community talking about such a difficult subject. Are you man enough? Come join us. All proceeds benefit Day League, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. For more information and to register, go to Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you 
or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio from the Atlanta Healing Center, I have with me Michael Daly and David Donaldson. We're talking about drinking holidays, particularly as we look forward to the Labor Day holiday this weekend, and also maybe taking a second look at how alcohol may be affecting your life. And we're not addressing this particular show towards people who have the disease of addiction. So let's be clear about that. Most of the things that we're talking about here today are definitely related to just people consuming alcohol or over-consuming alcohol. So you all had a different way of pronouncing the word I said before the end of this, um, the first segment. I thought it was drunk cheese. Okay. Like munchies only... Drunk cheese. Drunk Whatever. So eating while drunk or as a relate uh, heavy drinking, how it affects your, um, your actual eating behavior. This is a really interesting study done at the University of Buffalo. To your point, David, this was done on college students. And so because of that... Didn't the theme come from a, a college newspaper where there was an advertisement that talked about all the different, basically, fast foods that, that are available available after the bars closed? After the bars <clears throat> closed. Yes. Yeah, so this is looking at how drinking affected these college students. And to your point, this was college students, and so may not apply to you, but... Unless you're a college student, of course, um, dear listener. But uh, if you are just anybody, think about if you've had too much to drink, how that might be affecting your appetite and what you eat and when you eat. So this study was interesting in the fact that they asked these students, um, when did they usually eat breakfast and what did they usually eat for breakfast? When did they usually eat their last meal of the day? And what did they usually eat for that? And so they got this basic idea from the students about their diets and their dietary behaviors, whether they skipped breakfast or what they had for breakfast, when they ate supper and what they had for supper on just a regular everyday day. Then they came back and asked them about when they were drinking. Yeah, I thought that was that was really pretty interesting because <laughs> when they were drinking, um, <clears throat> they tended to have their last meal after they finished drinking, um, so they would eat it much later, and they tended to choose saltier, um, uh, fattier foods, um, pizzas and tacos and those kind of things, um, rather than salad or anything healthy or anything that they would normally have for their last meal of the day. Well, what's interesting also is that the list of, of restaurants that are going to be open after hours <laughs> right. is probably not a salad bar, you know. So, I mean, their choices are sort of limited to certain things. But then when you think about it also, um, when when you were at a party or a, a gathering where there's 
definitely alcohol, and that's the main reason that you're mm-hmm. there. It's always salty foods. It's always chips. It's peanuts. Peanuts. It's salty pretzels. Um, pretzels, dry type of things with dips, maybe. And you know, the study itself was was not so much focused on alcohol so much as nutrition and nutritional choices that people were making. So, in the in looking at the nutritional intake that that the participants had, they looked at the calorie content and the the nutritional of all all the drinks as well to really highlight just how much fat people because the 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 basic root of the study was looking at the growing obesity issues on college campuses um, and where people are getting the seating so i was kind of surprised that they didn't actually look at a lot more of the eating while drinking Right. They did the eating after, after. drinking and the next day eating. Mm-hmm. Because there is often a lot of eating that snacking, I wouldn't say major, in the college um, age group. And for a lot of people, uh, may- maybe they're not having their glass of wine and having dinner. That's not what we're talking about. These are folks that are, are drinking heavily uh, up late at night. But there is eating that does go along. And uh, to your point, Michael, Salty, dry foods do what to your thirst? (laughs) They increase it. (laughs) And that's one of the difficulties, and that's one of the ways in which somebody's going to really ensure that they have a hangover is to eat a lot of salty foods that are going to make you more thirsty. You drink more alcohol. Alcohol is a diuretic, which causes you to lose more fluid. And they did note in this study that most of the time people who were drinking alcohol were not consuming more water or not consuming water at all, which means they were getting more and more dehydrated as the evening went on, which is going to add even more to the idea that they're going to have a hangover the next morning. And I also think it's interesting, if you if you really think about this, whereas people that are using, like, marijuana, when they have the munchies, they tend to go for the sugary, sweet mm-hmm. um, dessert type of things. Um, I, we, I think we just recently heard about a business that opened in one of the college towns where they baked big huge hot chocolate chip cookies and delivered them and they said their busiest time was after the bars closed (laughs) (laughs) so they would get home delivery to their college dorms uh, and were very successful with their hot um, made-to-order chocolate chip cookies Uh, so so this study made a point of talk of really pointing out that this group once they were drinking were more apt to have breakfast the next day than the others that that right if they weren't drinking they were likely to skip breakfast but this group was likely to have breakfast and again it was it was the pizza and tacos and stuff i'm assuming is left over from the night before right um but when they were talking about the research they talked about this is probably because of the idea that that these kind of foods will help stop a hangover because they're going to absorb the alcohol. And what I thought was interesting <laughs> was that part of the drinking culture that you hear about to avoid alcohol, uh, avoid hangovers, is to be sure to drink a couple glasses of water before you go to sleep so that you don't have a hangover. You would think that that would have also shown, but not with college students. Right. At least college students haven't, haven't heard, gotten that memo or heard that uh, that message that hangover cure and david as you were talking about um the additional calories so 
they estimated that if someone drinks five beers, that's adding 750 calories or about a third of most of these students' daily requirement of calories. So just in the consumption of the beer alone was really increasing the caloric intake. And many of these had folks had eaten earlier in the day, they go out drinking, and then they're consuming these high-fat, high-salt, high-calorie foods late at night and getting up and eating high-calorie, high-salt, high-fat foods in the morning to absorb the alcohol, which is interesting because the alcohol's pretty much been absorbed. <laughs> um, they should by, by that point in time, I, I'm more talking breakfast. They really should be eating the food before they go out, um, and they'll have less of a chance of drinking too much, of having a hangover, or getting too drunk. But they didn't get that memo either. Interesting um, topic, though, done at the University of Buffalo, and. Um, Something that I think uh, needs to be looked at for people, especially if they're trying to watch their diet or to eat in a more healthy way. Well, and the other thing is, I was going to add real quick, is is that the calories from alcohol yes. are not the most nutritional calories. Really? <laughs> I'm so, so they shocked. just kind of go towards that little middle section. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, increased caloric intake from the alcohol, increased caloric take intake, and that would have been interesting to look at what they were eating during their um, their drinking episodes. Because chips and nuts, these are high calorie foods that can add up pretty fast. And then what they were drinking or eating afterwards and eating next morning. And it's interesting if you go into like a neighborhood type pub where people sort of come in and have a few beers and, and, and that type of thing, not like a club. But a lot of times on the bar there will be jars of goldfish or jars of pretzels or jars of salty, dry things to mm-hmm. increase their consumption of alcohol. Somebody really thought this through, didn't they? <laughs> so again, if you're going to be consuming alcohol this weekend, eat first. Uh, try and keep your fluid intake at least uh, eight ounces of water for every drink that you have, especially if they're standard drinks. If they're more than a standard drink, if you've got a heavy pourer or you're using high-gravity beer or other uh, kinds of drinks, you may need more alcohol, or excuse me, more, <laughs> no, you don't need more alcohol, you may need more water than that, and being careful about making sure you're well hydrated before you go to bed, you'll sleep better in the morning and hopefully consume less um, calories over, over your night. So that's our second tip, to make sure that you take care of yourself and rehydrate Frequently, often, especially if you're outside, especially if it's hot. So there was another interesting study that was done in Sweden. I cannot pronounce the name of the uh, university that it was done at, um, but it was done by the Department of Clinical and Experimental uh, Medicine. And this particular uh, group were looking at how the brain actually operates differently when someone, in this case rats, um, are being tempted with alcohol or with sugar water. 
We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll look a little bit more about what happened in this study. Thanks for listening. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and Michael Daly from the Atlanta Healing Center are with me, and we're talking about drinking holidays, in particular our upcoming holiday. And we're taking another look at alcohol and how it affects people who drink too much and not necessarily because they have the disease of addiction but because of a circumstance a situation a drinking holiday other kinds of problems so this study that was done in sweden um, was really interesting in that they took rats and they taught rats how to press a lever and if they press the lever they would get alcohol they also learned to press a level a lever and they would get sugar, sugar water. water. Sugar water. So the rats learned that they could get what they wanted, alcohol, sugar water. Um, then they added something a little bit different to the experiment and they made the rats well, this I thought was actually pretty interesting first before they did that next part okay with that the, they looked at the ones that were choosing sugar water or alcohol and they found that about 17% of the rats continued to pick alcohol water 
over the sugar water. Correct. Thank you. Which is somewhat similar to the human population. I don't think the humans are quite that high. But they segregated out these alcoholic rats. And then they did this next step that you're going into and picking on the poor alcoholic rats. So, um, and that's a very good point. And to that point, the rat brain is often used as a model for addiction all kinds of addiction, not just alcohol, but all types of addiction in animals and comparing that to humans. Because that part of our brain where addiction lies, and I'm by ours I mean humans, not rats, but the addiction part of our brain is identical to the rat brain. The difference is the rat brain doesn't have the very thick skull that we have, and they also don't have the large cortex that we have. So the addiction center is very close to the surface of their skull, and it makes doing some of these studies, whether they're looking at electrical impulses, whether they're going in and, and uh, knocking out a part of the brain or they're trying to study the um, effects of drugs or alcohol on the brain, they can use rats as a, as a perfect model for humans. So in this study, rats were given a choice, 17% routinely picked the alcohol. So those 17% were then put in a separate area. Correct. Then they added the next part, which was a little electric shock. <laughs> because This makes me laugh every time. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's having a hard time containing himself the, today. <laughs> the basic definition of addiction is continued use despite serious consequences. And so this was their way of measuring that the 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 rats who preferred alcohol were also alcoholic. alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> so and they found that the rats would go to the alcohol despite knowing they were going to get shocked and choosing it anyway. anyway. And I said, if I was a little rat, my little paw would be on fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is remarkable that their preference for the alcohol and their compulsion to use alcohol was so strong that in spite of, of getting a shock and being, um, you know, Alerted, this is not a pleasant experience. They preferred to keep going. The alcohol was more of a reward than the shock was a deterrent. So continued use in spite of consequences, I think, is a very interesting study. They did some additional things looking at different proteins that were found in the brains of the alcoholic mice as a, or rats as opposed to the um, non-alcoholic rats and found that when they were able to use certain chemicals to knock out some of these proteins, that they were able to change that behavior and the alcoholic rats no longer preferred um, alcohol if there was a shock associated with it. So this is hopefully giving us some new ways of thinking about uh, treating this disease. Well, it's interesting to me to think about the rats and think about the 17% and the ones that kept going back because it's pretty clear that they were just common rats. They hadn't experienced a lot of trauma. Right. They hadn't you know, been mistreated in, mm -hmm. in the beginning or anything. They were just... And they weren't specifically bred... Right. To be alcoholic to rats. To be alcoholic rats. So it just tells you that there is this innate 
percentage percentage mm-hmm. that are going to be that. Well, and part of what the study was looking at was as the rats more and more pursued the alcohol over the sugar water, they were having more. They were having a reaction in their brain related Correct. to GABA. Um, and then the processing of GABA, and I think maybe your scientific mind might explain more. But the thing that the big takeaway was, it's giving some clues towards potential medicines in the future that will help uh, possibly cure, not cure, but but stem the progression of mm-hmm. alcohol dependency. And I also think it would be a really interesting. I don't know how you would do it, but to Increase the amount of stimulant, at, you know, the electrical, and see if there was a, a point at which they would decide that hit their bottom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or to that see they would stop. if they would just mm-hmm. basically continue until they were dead. Mm-hmm. And you know, some of the cocaine studies, um, not necessarily were they getting a shock, but it was um, they learned to press a lever and then get cocaine and press a lever and get cocaine. And then they started seeing how many times would they press the lever without getting cocaine. How long would they keep going? And these rats would go until they were dead. Uh, they would keep pressing the lever going now a hundred presses and a thousand presses, and they would continue to, to try get and get the, and they could have a the most beautiful girl rat walking through the cage, they could have food, they could have water, they could have all kinds of things, Choices. and these rats weren't being punished, they just had to work really, really hard and non cocaine addict rats would would give up they would do it for a while, but then the reward that they got from the cocaine was not worth the amount of work they had to do, and they'd kind of walk away and go see the beautiful girl rat or, um, you know, have some water or take a nap. Because I believe in that study, they actually had the option to go to the other side of the cage and have water or food, and they wouldn't do it. They they just kept pushing the lever trying to get cocaine. And they weren't eating, they weren't sleeping, they weren't drinking, and they eventually would die. Um, still trying to work hard enough to get a little bit of cocaine. It would be really interesting to to show those type of of videos to the family groups just to help mm-hmm. understand that a person with the disease of addiction, mm-hmm. it's innate, and in spite of everything, they will choose it. Right. One of the um, the videos that has been helpful, again looking at rats and cocaine is one where the the experiment is that the rat has to go out in the middle of a brightly lit room in order to get the cocaine and and rats typically don't go into the middle of brightly lit rooms because of the fear of being eaten and they would still do it in order to use so they would overcome their fear they would over they would do things that normally they wouldn't do again Rats do make a really good model for the disease of addiction that we see in humans because we do see many of our patients engaging in behaviors, making choices, doing things that normally they would be afraid of, normally they would be um, uh, reluctant or they wouldn't do it. And it's almost like they're making a decision rather than they're making a choice because there's a part of it that's not a choice. Right. 
once the disease has revealed itself, mm-hmm. then then, then the, they're moving on. The choice is the choice is gone, mm-hmm. and people have um, have crossed over and once, have a problem. Once a pickle, always a pickle. Right, well, you can't go it, back to being a cucumber. It kind of speaks towards the, another study that we looked at um, that was looking at adults who drank, mm-hmm. and in this study. Um, going through two different time periods, four years apart, initially in 2001 and then in 2004, survey of 34,000 adults, um, and looking at the the adults that were drinking at a high-risk level, so for, for males, it was guy, men that were drinking more than 14 drinks per week on average, um, four drinks on an occasion, and for women, seven drinking times per week, three drinks on an occasion. Right. And what the study found was that people who were drinking at that level four years later tended to still be drinking at that level. And part of why this is important is that there's this, there's often this discussion about how college students regularly will meet the diagnostic criteria for substance abuse, but then when they graduate and they go on with their lives, they don't tend to continue to drink at that level because they become responsible and they get on with things. And what the study was showing was that they tend to still, four years later, be drinking at the same level. If they're still single, if they don't have children, um, those were the pretty two, the mm-hmm. main two predictors. If they were, if they got married between the two different dates, right. and if they'd had kids between the two different dates, then they were less likely to still be drinking at that level. But if they had gotten married and divorced, they would be back to drinking just like they right. were. If they were smoking, uh, if they were in the military. Uh, and if they saw themselves as um, as being in excellent health, and and we see that sometimes with our folks that they really equate, I've got a problem with drinking when my liver can't take it anymore or my bone marrow can't. But I'm healthy, so my body's handling this just fine. Leave me alone. I don't know why you're trying to get me to stop. So this was very interesting. 50% of the people that um, were drinking at this high level continued to, especially if they were in those categories. Interestingly as well is that if they were um, Hispanic or black, if they had received treatment or they had children, then they were most likely to have moved down to lower risk or not be drinking at all. And we do see that the Caucasian population tends to continue to have more problems with alcohol than do some of the other subpopulations. This was a study that was done at Boston University School of Public Health, and it was based on the National Epidemiological Survey on on Alcohol and Related Conditions. So this was a national survey, and this is a, a subset of the data from that. There was another piece that I thought was really interesting, which showed that the younger they were when they started drinking, the more likely they were to be having a problem four years later. And this was especially true for anyone who started drinking before the legal age. And again, we keep going back to this idea, if you could just wait to be legal before you started using drugs or alcohol, you're going to be um, much more likely to escape some some of the ravages. Not always. So, another tip 
please don't be letting your underage children have drugs and alcohol. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, please stay tuned. We're going to talk more about potential alcohol and death rates. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Join us for the first annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes on Saturday, September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park. For more information, go to AtlantaWalkAMileInHerShoes.EverydayHero.do. Are you man enough? Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, Michael Daly and David Donaldson are here with me from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're taking another look at alcohol as we approach a major drinking holiday. Again, we talked a little bit more about the disease of addiction in our last segment with the rats and the incredibly um, comparative model that rat alcoholics have to human alcoholics. But most of the studies that we're looking at um, in this program are not specific for people who have the disease of addiction. These are for people who are drinking heavily. And this study that was um, uh, done by CAMH, uh, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, um, based out of Toronto and the University of Toronto. This is the largest study of its kind that was published in The Lancet, which is um, a very prominent British medical journal, very well respected. This was looking at a group of people diagnosed with dementia in France. 
Now, France, as you know, part of their culture is uh, drinking, mm -hmm. and that often people begin drinking at a very early age. It's part of their the way that they interact within their families. Um, there's often a lot of folks that say we should model our drinking behavior after the French, but this study might make us want to rethink that a little bit. They looked at um, um, a large number of people, and they found uh, 57,000 people who had been diagnosed with early onset dementia. This is dementia before the age of 65. So this is a large number, and the vast majority of the of these early onset dementia, 60 um, be below the age of 65. 57% of them were related to chronic heavy drinking. Again, not necessarily the disease of addiction, not necessarily alcoholics, but people who drank heavily. Certainly, in the big books of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's talk about the wet brain and the alcoholic dementia that um, was recognized back in the early 1900s in this country. So this is a big, um, a big group of, um, of people with this early onset dementia that was um, attributed to, to drinking for men four to five Canadian standard drinks. I'll have to look that up. I think Canadian standard drinks are similar to U.S. standard drinks, but I'll have to make sure about that uh, for men or women drinking three standard drinks or more. And this was um, was a big, big problem and very much related to the dementia. Part of what I thought was amazing in this study was that it actually goes on and says that, that um, alcohol use disorder shortens the life expectancy by more than 20 years um, and that dementia is one of the leading, leading causes of death for for people um, you know we've we've regularly but talked about accidents and things that that shorten life but usually it's like alcohol and cigarettes and alcohol and driving right. and this plus cancer that. liver disease specifically alcohol use disorders taken people out 20 years earlier than expected and due to dementia, not the usual expected other things like liver disease. The other part of this, um, the vast majority of the dementia patients who had the early onset were actually women. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the studies that Kathleen Brady and her group over at the um, University of South Carolina Medical School looked at this telescoping effect, is what they call it, where uh, women exposed to lesser amounts of alcohol over shorter periods of time have much more cognitive effects, much more um, brain effects, and, and higher rates of effects on the liver and their bone marrow than do men for the same period of time. And there's a number of reasons, and we've talked about some of these before, but alcohol has a very significant effect on women and really can contribute to early dementia in women. Well, and we've seen that in, in our practice where you might meet someone that, you know, a woman that comes in and, and is having problems and, and tries to quit and they're not able to, and then they go back out and drink for a while, meaning like a couple of years, then they come back. When they come back, there's usually a huge 
difference from the yes from the initial contact. And we see this in their neurocognitive tests that we do. We see this in their brain maps, their uh, quantitative EEGs, when we're looking at um, their level of functioning and their brain's level of functioning. We see a big difference even with um, you know, a very short period of time between relapse and um, treatment. And their, their self-recognition is, is pretty small. Right. The interesting comment that um, Dr. Bruce Pollock, who is the CAMH Vice President of Research and a geriatric psychiatrist, he says, I frequently see the effects of alcohol use disorder on dementia when, unfortunately, alcohol treatment interventions may be too late to improve the condition. And that's to your point. Uh, we need to be um, screening for this. We need to be asking people much earlier in their lives. This should be, again, part of the standard screening for people going to their primary care doctor, their OBGYN, looking at and advising people to make sure that if you are drinking that you are looking at what are the low-risk drinking versus um, the uh, high-risk drinking. But there was another study... Well, and on your point, that I think that some, part of what we do at the Atlanta Healing Center is that we really look at the whole person and we look at their brain health and we begin doing things to help improve their brain health that hopefully some of the, the people who really get on board with what we're doing won't have to be looking at dementia as as their future. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the study that I really grabbed my eye when I was first thinking about our show today was this one that, that it, it's, you know, it says less is better, but none is best. And what this study was looking at, this is a global study looking at 169 countries. And what it found was that even people who are just doing the safe recommended low, one, risk. low risk drinking that's supposed to be good for your cardiac health, if they were doing that one drink a day, they were more likely to die in a year than people who were abstinent. And what was really interesting to me was if they were doing two drinks a day, their numbers went up um, 5%. And if they were drinking five drinks a day, their numbers went up uh, 7 went way, way up. So less is better. None is best was the real big takeaway from that really study. Bad. And more is and more, more is, is really, really, really bad. bad. So overall, drinking is the seventh leading cause of premature death and disease in 2016. And this is, again, as you said, uh, worldwide. The six top killers are high blood pressure, smoking, low birth weight, premature delivery, um, high blood sugar, obesity. But inherent in all of these and underlying many of these is the idea that um, the consumption of alcohol, while has certainly been integrated into much of society and uh, people's expectations. Low-risk drinking is better. And again, if you're under the age of 65 and a man, that's no more than two standard drinks. And remember, a standard drink is one and a half ounces of liquor um, or a 12-ounce regular octane beer. Um, so for men, no more than two a day, no more than 14 a week, and you can't save the 14 for, for, one, day. for one day. For women, no more than one 
uh, standard drink per day and no more than seven per week, and you can't save the seven for the holiday weekend. So that's low-risk drinking. But this global study that that looked at the 169 countries and over 500 different experts in the field uh, doing this study show that the best um, uh, level of outcome is the no drinking, the abstinence. But And I think it's so interesting in the sense that, at least here in America, alcohol is creeping more and more into people's lives and becoming a part of things that never would have before. Children's birthday parties are become drinking events for adults. And, and um, having these Church big parties, gender identity recognition birth things are now drinking events for adults. So please have a safe, healthy um holiday weekend please take care of yourself don't drive intoxicated minimize your drinking eat something first and if you can not drink that's the best thanks for listening we'll see you next week on detailing addiction you're listening to america's web radio on the america's broadcast network.com thank you for listening the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Come join us on September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park for the first ever Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. Walk a Mile in Her Shoes asks men to literally walk one mile in women's high heel shoes as a way to express empathy to all victims of sexual assault. It's a lighthearted way to get the community talking about a difficult subject. Are you man enough? Come join us. All proceeds benefit Day League, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. For more information and to register, go to Atlanta Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call, where healthcare, business, and current events connect. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. 
More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You for listening. America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.